this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we do stop and, and do just that. We, we acknowledge that you've given us now the gift of another day of life uh, that you did not owe us and that you did not give to everyone who went to bed last night. We thank you for, for this gift. We pray that you'd help us to recognize, as we need to every day, that it is a stewardship. It's a gift given uh, with the expectation that we would treasure and be thankful for what you've given us and that we would use it for your glory. And so, Lord, help us to do that with today. And we thank you that we are able to be here together as a, as a, a, a family, a body of believers. Thank you for the things that you have to, to show us this morning, the, the ways you're giving us to love and care for each other, to bear each other's burdens. Uh, all of this is so clearly from you. Uh, only a God like you uh, would have this in store uh, in these ways for your, for your people. And so we thank you. Father, we ask that you would guard us now as we get into and continue this study in, in apologetics. Uh, protect us from, from, from false thoughts uh, and help us, Lord, to center and to more and more learn how to center our lives around the reality uh, of what you have uh, revealed to us in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, so this is, this is now starting the second session or message or lecture in, in Bonson's series here uh, called Defending the Faith. This is really walking through uh, the discipline called presuppositional apologetics. That's the big word. You could just think of defending the faith here. Uh, last week, well, the last two weeks, he's been talking about one thing in particular, and that is what he calls the myth of neutrality. You remember what he has said about that? Uh, he, he gave these, these students, I mean, he's, he, he's, he's preparing them for what they're going to face as they go off to college back in the early 90s. Uh, very much, I mean, what we're seeing is he's preparing us for what we face in our entire society now. This is broken out into just accepted uh, culture everywhere. Uh, but he's, he's given them two thoughts to go off to college with uh, when it comes to neutrality, uh, when someone asks you to be neutral. We remember that they aren't and that we shouldn't be, right? Uh, and and it, it, his point is much deeper than that. His point is not that we, we shouldn't be neutral. His point is that no one can be neutral. It is physically impossible. Our brains don't work that way. No one gets up in the morning and starts off their day neutral, testing things, evaluating according to something and no, to decide how to move. No one lives that way and no one thinks that way. So it's a myth. That was the point of that, uh, of that first session. Um, this morning, he's going to shift now, and he's going to start talking in particular about, um, well, really two words. The first is the word worldview. Uh, what are worldviews? And he's going to say that they're made up of this second thing he's going to talk about, and that is the word presuppositions. So worldview and presuppositions, uh, what are they? He's going to give us some really helpful uh, examples of these things. I'm someone who's always helped with a good, concrete example. He's going to give us, give us several of these. Um, we're going to spend this morning, we're going to watch uh, 30 minutes of the video and, be, and discuss it afterward. And then next week we'll finish this session, which will be another 20 minutes. Uh, so there will be, uh, the way Ken did his was we watched the whole video in the first week and then discussed it all in the second week. For these next two, it's going to be broken into a couple of pieces. All right. Um, what we're going to see this morning, what he's going to do in our section, really he's going to do three things. 
Um, the first thing is uh, going to be leading us toward a, um, a, a central point he's going to make here in these next couple of weeks. And it's going to keep coming up uh, as, we go, as we go through this series. Uh, he's going to be challenging us as Christians to realize something, something that's true of us, it's true of, of every thinking human being. And that is that worldviews are networks of presuppositions uh, that are, here's how he's going to describe it, they are determinative for how a person thinks. Uh, they're not things we think about thinking. We don't think about our presuppositions. They are unconscious even to us. They are assumed. They're the basis on which we think about everything else. So that's why it's, uh, it's been a useful picture I've heard before that, that our worldview, which is made up of our presuppositions, what it really is, is it's the pair of glasses that we have cemented to our face so that every, every place we go, everything we see, we see through that lens. And that really helps us when we think about apologetics, defending the faith, trying to uh, pers- be persuasive and share Christ. Because if, if that's true, what does that mean about the the facts out there? What's it mean about the evidence out there? It doesn't mean that the facts out there are unimportant. They're very important. But the facts aren't the end. They're they're not even the determinative factor. If if there's a brute fact right there on that chair, but I put on these glasses and it totally affects and determines the way I see it, and Frank puts on his glasses and it, it gives him a completely different view of that thing, well, we're not going to do ourselves any good trying to talk about the fact itself. We've got to talk about the glasses we have on. We have to talk about what, what are the assumptions that we're coming here with. And that's what a worldview is, and that's what he's going to be uh, explaining to us and talking about this morning. So that's going to be very helpful. Um, this is what's going to be at the heart of his claim um, that he's already given to us, that, uh, that he's trying to equip us. You remember when he said, it was pretty bold, he said, uh, my goal is to equip you to be able to give an answer and to, to speak as a Christian in every situation you find yourself in, no matter how much you have studied up on those particular issues or not. You remember when he said something like that? Um, this, is, this is what he's, he's getting at here. Uh, he's equipping us to, re, to, to embrace the fact that reality is on our side. Our lens that the scriptures have given us and that God has given us through his Holy Spirit as Christians, our lens allows us to see reality as it really is. That's the claim we're making as Christians. Not that we're smarter or that we're somehow... It's that our eyes have been opened to the way that that reality actually exists. And what's on our side is this. If that's true, how successful is anyone in fighting against reality? If I just insist to you that I have discovered the secret of flight, I can be very persuasive, but if I try to climb out that window and go out the door that way, I'm not going to be able to, I can't fight against reality, right? And so the Christian understands in our worldview that all of the way God has structured reality comports with the Christian worldview and does not comport with competing worldviews. Reality is on our side. Uh, and he's going to develop some of those things in very, I think, very helpful ways, in ways that will allow for some really good conversation for us. Um, that's the first thing he's going to do. The second thing he's going to do, he's going to start about 15 minutes in, all right, this morning. He's going to go to the whiteboard. 
And I just want to prepare you here before he opens up that, uh, that dry erase marker, okay? Um, there's a lot in this message and in the one after it. Not, not all of it, but there's some pieces in here, and the second piece is one of those. That's going to test what kind of a person you are, <laughs> okay? And what I mean by that is it's going to test your ability to sit there and trust somebody and try to follow them uh, and to not become discouraged and to check out, all right? He's going to start putting some philosophical terms on the board there, and, and, and he gets, for a time, he gets somewhat deep there. He doesn't do it just to show that he's smart. He will explain to us why this is necessary, and he's going to use it for some great examples. It's good stuff. But there's this chunk in there where you just got to be ready to, to sit up straight and, and go with it. If you don't understand everything he says, it's no, it's, you're not lost. Just keep going, and he's going to explain it, okay? So I just want to prepare you for that about 15 minutes in when he turns to the whiteboard. Uh, it does get very classroom there, and he goes through some different philosophical systems and worldviews for a few minutes, uh, but it's very useful. Uh, and you're going to see he's doing it for a purpose. Uh, there are some weeds we've got to work through, uh, and there's some good results at the end, okay? So is that a, is that a sufficient uh, preparation for you at that? I just don't want you to get halfway through and then find yourself... Uh, no, just, just bear him out. He's, he's going to come back, too. He doesn't stay there like that. Um, in particular, in that piece, he's going to talk about uh, three things that are in that a worldview gives us or that a worldview answers for us. Here are those three things, right? This is some of the kind of words he's going to put up there. Metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Is that, can you see that? I thought I made it big enough, but it's still kind of... I see some of you squinting up there. Um, so this is, this is uh, he'll explain what those are and how that functions and what we've been talking about. Um, and then we're going to get to the third thing he's going to deal with, and that is he's going to come back then and start to connect a lot of the dots between the first thing and, and those definitions in the second. Uh, and he'll start talking about how those philosophical systems he's been talking about uh, really come into play in the real world in the unconscious ways that people walk through their everyday lives. And that's where really good examples start to come back in. So we're going to go ahead and start the video now. Uh, and by the end, I, if I've timed this right, we should have about 15 minutes for discussion. And I've got some quiz questions I'm going to ask you. All right? I'll give you the questions ahead of time. I'm going to ask you to tell me what did he say a worldview is. Uh, I'm going to ask you to tell me who did he say has a worldview. And then what was my third question? Well, I had a third question in there somewhere. I'll have a third question that I'm not going to give you. You'll have to just try to. So pay attention. Okay. Um, okay, so we'll go ahead and start, uh, start the video. I was making the point at the end of our last session that the believer and the unbeliever have conflicting philosophies, have conflicting overall outlooks on the nature of reality and how we know what we know and how we should live our lives. Another way of putting this is to say that the believer and the unbeliever have conflicting worldviews, a term that I know you've heard already uh, in the conference and you're going to hear a lot more before you go home. Let me give you a definition of what I mean by a worldview. A worldview is a network of presuppositions which are not tested by natural science and in terms of which all of experience is related and interpreted. Once again, 
A worldview is a network of presuppositions not tested by natural science in terms of which all experience is related and interpreted. A person's worldview is a network, first of all. It's not just one belief. It's a whole system of beliefs. But the kind of beliefs we are dealing with when we talk about a worldview are that special variety of beliefs called presuppositions. We'll say more about what a presupposition is later, but for now, suffice it to say that a presupposition is not just any assumption a person has, it's a very fundamental or logically basic assumption. It is, in fact, the precondition of that person's thinking. Because a person's presuppositions about the nature of reality and the nature of knowledge and the nature of human conduct and value, a person's presuppositions provide the precondition for choosing the problems that you consider genuinely problematic, giving you a method for discovering and resolving, providing for you the standards of interpretation. Everybody has just such a network of presuppositions. Now that isn't to say that everybody knows they have these presuppositions. I and mean, obviously a person can have tuberculosis without knowing he or she has tuberculosis. In fact, a person can have tuberculosis even when they deny that they have tuberculosis. You may go to your next door neighbor, this guy who lives for all the gusto in life that he can get, you know, and uh, try to talk to him about philosophy and say, you know, you've got your presuppositions worldview too. He'll say, no, I don't. I don't even want to think about that stuff. So get away from me. I don't believe in thinking about philosophy. Just give me a beer and turn on the game on the tube. He may tell you that, but he's got his presuppositions anyway. It's just a matter of getting him to think self-consciously about his presuppositions. Everyone's got presuppositions. If they didn't, they wouldn't even know where to begin in the morning. I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. If you had to, when you wake up in the morning, you don't assume anything now. You just have to start from scratch deciding what you're going to believe about life and about yourself. Well, should you sit up in bed, first of all, get dressed, have some breakfast, and then say, okay, now I've got to apply myself to the really tough questions. What is real? How should I live my life? No, because you've already decided that certain things are real and that you should live your life a certain way just by deciding to get up out of bed. And how do you know what you know? Are you the same person you were yesterday? Are you the same person you were a week ago or a month ago? And you go down to the table and your mother says, Hi, Johnny. How are you doing today? You just take it for granted you're Johnny. But you see, that assumes that there's personal identity between you, the Johnny of this morning, and you, the Johnny of last week. Now I am sure that you're all sitting there saying, this guy has lost it. <laughs> He's worried about whether I'm the same person I was a week ago. Well, believe it or not, there are reasons why philosophers get worked up about questions like that. But the reason is not that they just get up and uh, this question confronts them. You see, that's the kind of question that comes after you've thought about other kinds of questions.
that require looking into assumptions and methods and then they start testing their assumptions and methods and they get into deeper sorts of levels of abstraction and finally they ask the kind of things which make people wonder if philosophers are sane at all. But since you think I'm insane, I'll, I'll play the game with you. And how would you prove that you are the person that you were last week, allegedly? How would you do that? What if I hypothesized that God created the world this morning, he created everybody in it, and created them with the memory bank that you now use as memory thinking that you existed a week ago and that you were doing whatever you were doing according to your memory a week ago. Now you may say, well that's a silly kind of thing, who cares? And maybe it is, but I'm from the land of fruits and nuts and so we um, we're kind of nutty about these matters. I might still say, okay, it seems kind of silly, but then how do you know otherwise? When you get up in the morning, you took that for granted. You assumed identity of your person over time. And that, I want to assure you now, all kidding aside, is one of the most perplexing problems in philosophy. Personal identity. You assumed that memory was reliable. You assumed you could trust your senses. You assumed you should live in a certain way. You assumed that eating a certain kind of food was good for your body or would be pleasurable. You assumed a lot. You didn't explore and discover all those things new every day. Everybody has presuppositions. Everybody has preconditions for living their life, evaluating things knowing what they know. And when you go off to college and you find people with an antagonistic point of view to your Christianity, what I want you to see is that the presuppositions that that person is using, the worldview that that person is using and opposing your Christian outlook or worldview is going to be the crux for defending the faith. Worldviews, when all is said and done, will determine what a person believes and how a person lives his or her life. Worldviews are a package deal. Every particular experience, everything you encounter, every thought you have, every sensation that you experience, every particular is seen in terms of a broader system of interpretation. A system that allows you to relate one particular sensation to another, or one point of view to another, so that you can start drawing conclusions. And that system of beliefs, that broader system, in terms of which the particulars are related and interpreted, is a worldview. By the way, the fact that Christianity is a worldview has an interesting consequence that goes way beyond how we defend the faith goes way beyond the subject of apologetics. Because Christianity is a worldview, you need to be aware of the fact, and maybe at this conference will be the first time that you've taken it seriously, you need to be aware of the fact that if you are committed to Christ at any particular point in your life, then you need to be committed to Christ at every point in your life. Christianity is not simply about 
a certain narrow range of human experience, like when you pray, or go to church, or evangelize people, or read your Bible. All of those things are important. All of those things express Christian commitment. But if you are committed to Christ anywhere in your life, anywhere in your experience, then you need to be committed to Christ everywhere in your experience, which is to say, since Christianity is a world and life view, to be a Christian is to have a distinctively Christian way of looking at reasoning. We looked at that in our last session. But it means you have a distinctively Christian way of looking at literature as well, and human nature, and social relationships, and economics, and politics, and education, and family life, and recreation, and art, and industry, and everything else that is part of human experience. To be a Christian, to be committed to Christ at any one point, means you must be committed to Christ at every point in your life. Because Christianity is a worldview. It's not just one of the many options that a number of different philosophies can tie into. It is basic, it is fundamental, it is logically fundamental so that it affects everything systematically. It is not simply a narrow point of view. Now if everyone has a worldview, let's stop and think about some of the issues that every worldview addresses. I'm going to try to put some of this up on the board for you so you can keep track of it. These are key issues for anybody's worldview. They are issues that you address as a Christian. If you stop and think about your Christian theology, you'll see that you've got a view on these matters. But everyone else in the world has a certain view on these matters too. In order to lay this out, I need to introduce to you the three major divisions of philosophy, however. And that means that it's going to sound like intellectual bullying unless you tune in just long enough to get the definition of these terms. You need to be aware of these things. You probably haven't learned them you know, up to this point, but it will help you greatly in, in your reading in college to know what I'm talking about. First, metaphysics. Secondly, epistemology. And third, ethics. You've probably heard the term ethics anyway. Metaphysics. Metaphysics studies the nature of reality, the origin, structure, and nature of what is real, of whatever exists. What is the nature of reality? What is the world like? What is man like? What is man's place in the world? These are metaphysical questions. They're not questions about the physical world simply, but that which goes beyond the physical world and accounts for the physical world. And I'm going to give you five questions that at least have to be addressed in any adequate metaphysic, any doctrine of the nature of reality. First is the question of the nature of man. What is man? What's he like? Is man free? Is man basically good? Is man an animal? These are metaphysical questions. Secondly, there's the question of the nature of the universe. What is the origin of the universe? Where did it come from? How did it get here? 
What's its structure? How does it work? Thirdly, there's the question of the existence of God. So we have the nature of man, the nature of the universe, and the nature of God. Then obviously, what is man's place in the universe before God, if there is such a God? These are metaphysical questions. But two other matters, real briefly, might be brought up. Am I going too fast for you? Man, the universe, God. What are they like? The fourth issue is the question of change or development, often called the question of history. What is history? How do things change? Why do they change? How is development possible? This leads those who are in the philosophy of history to ask, where is history going? Is history going anywhere? Is there such a thing as meaning in history? That's a metaphysical question. And then fifthly, there's the question of the character of laws or concepts or universals. And finally, uniformity. I'll repeat that again. The character of laws or concepts or universals or uniformity. If you're going to understand the nature of reality, you have to understand, on the one hand, the nature of change, development, and history, but also you have to understand the nature of unchanging things like concepts or uniform things like laws or universal principles or even the uniformity of the way in which history progresses or the natural world changes. Now I've been talking in a, in a way that's kind of philosophical and will get real boring. But if you stop and think about it, what I've been talking about can be expressed in terms of Christian theology, too. I've been talking about the doctrines of creation, fall, and consummation. Because we as Christians, hearing the Bible preached to us week after week and reading it every day of our lives, are learning about the nature of man and the nature of the universe and the nature of God and his existence. We are learning about history and where it's going, about the consummation of all things. We're learning about how God regulates the world. We're learning universals and uniformity. We're learning about the nature of man as a fallen being, that is to say, not basically good, and therefore abusing his freedom. And so, in a very real sense, what the metaphysical philosophers are studying is just um, Christian theology in a kind of a secular and in many cases heretical garb. They've got their doctrine of creation and fall and consummation, just like you have your doctrine of creation, fall, and consummation. The reason why many people never bring these things together is because the vocabulary is different. And because it doesn't seem like they're interested in being religious if you interpret religion as very narrowly going to church and acts of ritual or worship. But the fact is they've got their doctrine that matches, answers to, actually competes with your doctrine of man's creation, fall, and the consummation of all things. The second area that philosophers study and about which everyone has presuppositions is called epistemology.
Epistemology is one's theory of knowledge. It studies the nature and limits of knowledge and such concepts as belief or truth or knowledge itself and how beliefs are justified. Epistemology is a general theory then of man's knowing, how it's possible, what the limits of it are, what methods are to be used in pursuing it. Four particular questions that epistemological philosophers address are these. First, the nature of truth and objectivity. What is the very nature of truth and related to that, the nature of being objective in one's thinking? Secondly, what is the nature of belief and knowledge? What is the relationship between believing something and knowing something? Is knowing something just a case of believing it with all your heart? Or is it something more than that? Is it possible to know something and not believe it? Is it possible to know something and believe it and yet not profess to believe it? These are questions that we ask in epistemology. Thirdly, what are the standards or procedures for justifying one's beliefs? How does one know what one knows? What kind of proof or evidence is acceptable? And then finally, epistemology deals with what might be called science and discovery, the very procedures of science and how they are to be evaluated and in what way they offer standards for discovering more things about the world. Now that again sounds all very philosophical, but in a very real way people who are studying epistemology are giving a counterpart to what you have learned from Sunday school on as the doctrine of revelation, how man's mind is enlightened by God. The Christian has views with respect to knowledge and the discovery of new truths. The Christian has views about the standards of truth and belief. And those views are all related in one way or another to our doctrine of God's revealing himself. Revealing himself not only directly to us in our heart of hearts, but, direct, but revealing himself indirectly through the created order that we are to study and know him better. And then revealing himself, of course, in the words of scripture, the Bible, and revealing himself in the person of his own son who came into this world as the highest expression of knowing God because he was God himself. And so a worldview is going to have a certain epistemology about it. Just like your Christian worldview has a certain view of God's revelation which characterizes you. And then finally, philosophers study ethics, obviously the study of right and wrong, good and bad, attitudes and actions. Ethics. In philosophy, we study the nature of good and evil and language about ethical judgments. What does the word good mean? How does it function? In philosophy, we study the standard of ethics and ethical evaluation. Under the general rubric of ethics, we can place the study of 
the notions of guilt, atonement, and personal peace. Fourthly, ethics looks at the nature of the social order and the state. And finally, ethics studies how one attains or produces moral character, how one comes to conduct himself or herself in an ethical fashion. So we have the question of the nature of good and evil, the standard of ethics, the question of guilt and personal peace, the question of social order in the state, and finally the question of how we produce or attain moral character and conduct. Now that sounds very philosophical, perhaps, and yet you as a Christian have studied ethics the whole time that you've been um, subject to the preaching of God's Word. The whole time that you've been reading Scripture, you've been reading ethical subjects. Obviously, the fall of man has to do with ethics. Why it is that it's now difficult to attain moral behavior. The fall of man has something to do with guilt. Moreover, the doctrine of redemption in the Bible deals with this whole notion of guilt or atonement and personal peace. How is man to find a solution to his personal problems? That is a secular way of putting it. The Bible puts it in terms of how man is redeemed, how he comes to have a just standing in the sight of God. So over against these three areas of metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, I hope that you'll put in another column, if you will, something of the Christian counterpart to many of the sub-questions that we've been looking at, and that is the Christian counterpart found in the doctrines of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We talk about it in different ways, we approach it in different ways, but the substance of what is studied in philosophy is also the substance of what is delivered to us in Christian theology, which is what we are committed to because we are followers of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when you go into the university classroom, the professor is not going to encourage you to do this, but you need to take it upon yourself to be asking always, what view of origins is assumed by this man, or maybe explicitly being taught. What view of origins that stands over against my view as a Christian believing in creation, believing in the self-contained God who needs nothing, and who sovereignly chose of himself out of nothing to create the world? What is this person, what is this professor giving me that stands over against that? You need to be asking, what is this person's view of man's problem? Why are there difficulties in this world? That is to say, what is his counterpart to the Christian doctrine of sin and the fall of man? What kind of solutions to men's problems are we hearing at the university? That is, what secular theories of salvation or redemption are we running into? What view of history and the meaning of man's experience is being given that is the counterpart to our view of the consummation of all things. Now let me real quickly run through a few examples for you just to show you that 
other worldviews outside of Christianity address these questions. Think about Hinduism for a minute, another world religion. Do Hindus have a particular view of origins that stands over against the Christian doctrine of creation? Well, they certainly do. In the first place, Hinduism teaches that nothing is genuinely new or real because there cannot be any change. All is one. And what we see in our illusory experience of change is really nothing more but the cycle of life, the wheel of life. And that is, though a very perverse and I think an absurd view of origins, it is the counterpart in Hinduism to the Christian doctrine of creation. Think about behaviorism. Behaviorism as a school of psychology tells us that human beings do not genuinely have freedom but are rather nothing more than sophisticated stimulus response mechanisms. Human beings do what they do because they've been stimulated and conditioned to respond in the way that they do. You all know the story of Pavlov's dogs, right? Pavlov had this experiment many years ago where he would ring a bell right before he fed his hounds. And he found that after a while of stimulating and conditioning them in this way, that if he rang the bell, even though he didn't put food in front of them, they'd start salivating. And this, in a very um, crude and simple way, is the model that is used by behaviorists to understand all of human conduct. We are nothing more but stimulus response mechanisms, uh, glorified Pavlovian dogs, if you will. Now, does the behaviorist have a particular view of what's wrong with man? Well, he certainly does. He says he's not been conditioned properly. The reason why we have warfare and oppression and injustice all about us is because men have not been conditioned properly. That is, the ringing of the bell and the feeding of the food has not been put together in the right ways to make people act nice to make them act harmoniously and peacefully. And so the behaviorist has his own understanding of man's sinfulness and man's fall. Think about Marxism for a moment, which we hope to see less and less of in history, and maybe we have some reason to be encouraged um, in seeing communism struggle around the world these days. But for many years, it has been a very viable and a very popular philosophy. Does Marxism have a point of view that, that is the counterpart to Christian theology? Does the Marxist have a particular view of the consummation of all things, where history is going? Well, of course, the Marxist does. We believe that history is moving in the direction of a greater conflict between the city of God and the city of man. We see the kingdom of Jesus Christ coming to have ascendancy over all that which fights against it, as every enemy has made the footstool of Christ's feet. We see Christ returning in judgment to separate the sheep and goats, the wheat and the tares, and for all eternity then to confirm people standing either as living with God or being separated from him in hell. We have a certain view of consummation. We know where history is going. Does the Marxist think he knows where history is going? He certainly does, and that's why he sacrifices so much. That's why he's willing to become a member of the party and to give up his own freedoms and pleasures, because he believes that history is inexorably moving toward that consummation. 
And he wants to be part of that process. He wants to see revolution, overthrow oppressive and capitalist regimes. He wants to see the dictatorship of the proletariat and eventually the withering of the state. Think about existentialism for a moment. Is an existentialist someone who says that people are radically free, they have nothing that controls what they can be or what they are, and they define for themselves the meaning of their existence? Does the existentialist have a view that stands over against Christianity? Well, the existentialist clearly does. According to the existentialist, the nature of man is not to answer to God, not to answer to parents, not to answer to school teachers or professors or the state or anybody. Man answers to himself only. And when he fails to understand that, he doesn't have an authentic existence. He is alienated from himself. He is living in bad faith. And what he must do is assert his will and make a choice for himself without guidance from anybody else. He must recognize the absurdity of the universe and that he imposes meaning on his life and it's not given from God or from anything outside him. Now that sounds like a kind of theology, a very perverse theology a very heretical theology, but nonetheless, something that is like Christianity in answering questions about the nature of man and what's gone wrong with man and how man can save, be saved, in this case, save himself. Well, we can go on and on with illustrations, but... Thank you. Is that better? There we go. Um, I can remember in, in college, in I think it was a Hinduism class I was taking, our, our professor walked us through uh, the rate at which cells in the human body die and are shed, and so then therefore, how long does it take for nothing about you to have been the same that it, that it was? You see what I'm saying? At a certain point there, there is nothing, there's no part of you that was there X number of days or, or months ago, and using that to point out to, to us how absurd this notion was of actual personal identity. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illusion. I'm, I don't actually exist as an individual thing. I just think I do. But, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, some of the things he was, he was saying there with that. Um, he, he mentioned existentialism as well. H have any of you read... Um, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There, there is, uh, this is in a great book, James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door. He talks about worldviews. Um, but this gets at, it's a, it's a funny book. It's, a, it, it's laying out existentialism, this, the, the, the meaninglessness of life, except insofar as we as individuals just decide to create meaning for ourselves. Uh, so let me just read, read this, uh, this summary of this, uh, of this book for you. This is just a couple of paragraphs here. Um, oh, where was I going to start? Adams tells the story of the universe from the point of view of four time travelers who hitchhike back and forth across time and space, from creation in the Big Bang to the final destruction of the universe. During the course of this history, a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, who are actually mice, build a giant computer, which was the size of a small city, and they build this computer to answer the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. 
What is the meaning of life? They construct this computer to give them the answer. This computer, which they call Deep Thought, spends seven and a half million years on the calculation. For seven and a half million years, Deep Thought computes and calculates, and in the end announced that the answer to the question was 42. And so another, even bigger computer had to be built to find out what the actual question was. And this computer, which was called the Earth, was so large that it was frequently mistaken for a planet, especially by the strange ape-like beings who roamed its surface, unaware that they were simply part of a gigantic computer program. By the end of the second novel, the time travelers discover that the question itself, the ultimate question of life, is what is six times nine? So they discover both the question they discover that both the question and the answer are inane. You see the point? Millions of years to find the, and what's the answer? There, it's, all, it's all meaningless. There is no answer. There is no meaning. This is the worldview that is shaping, really, much of our entire society today. So don't tell me what to do. I'm going to grab what I can, right? I'm going to determine the meaning for myself. We're living the consequences of faulty worldviews today, and it's going to, the consequences are going to continue. Okay, so uh, here's our pop quiz. By the way, did anyone, you want to out anybody else here? Did you see anyone on their phones in that middle part of our, when things got, got hairy? Did anyone pull their phones out? You're a, you're a unified group. No one's giving anybody else out. Okay, good. Uh, what is a worldview? Good. A system of suppositions, she says. Network, yeah. He, I think he used both of those words. A system or a network of, of presuppositions, right? I forget now. I don't think I put, no. Um, are those pre, what's that? Very good. Not tested by natural science. That's right. Through which all is filtered. Yeah. All of the things I think and the decisions I make filtered through that worldview. This is why you can have people in the world sit for months in a little shack looking at their belly button and making a sound. That, that people will do that and think this is a meaningful thing because they're living on the basis of assumptions, very different assumptions than we have. To them, that makes very good sense to do. There were different assumptions starting it all off. There's a whole world of assumptions that we operate from, isn't there? Mm -hmm. That shapes us. We couldn't explain where it came from. I wonder if this adds even more credence to the definition that, that Dennis brought up last week about the basis of knowledge. Coming down to this, whose voice, are you, whose voice will you listen to? Whose voice do you listen to? I mean, it really, I think it, I think it can, can be, be reduced to something as basic as that. So Vani's saying this, this, is, this is the image of the glasses stuck to your face. If, if, they're, if they're stuck on there, it's just going to continue to determine what you see. Mm-hmm. 
presuppositions, preconditions of a person's thinking. He said that uh, their presuppositions about reality, human knowledge, uh, provide the precondition for, he said, choosing the problems. What are the, what are the problems? to begin with, that I need to think about and work after. Giving a method for discovering at all uh, and providing the standards of interpretation. So what about the second question? Who has a worldview? Everybody. Everybody. It doesn't mean everybody knows they have such a network. Uh, it doesn't mean they may not argue against that. I liked his, uh, his tuberculosis uh, image and these sorts of things. His point is that everyone walks around with a certain set of ideas that they think adequately answer questions, like what is real? Uh, Where does value come from? Uh, What makes something wrong or evil? And our claim, and this is what we were saying at the beginning, and he's going to continue to develop this. He didn't get into it much yet, but he's laying the groundwork. Our claim is, as Christians, only the biblical worldview is the real one, is the true one. That's very important for us to to come to grips with ourselves. We're claiming that reality attests to to an outlook uh, that is given to us in Scripture by the God of Scripture. Yeah, yeah. This isn't just at the individual level, it's the level of systems, which I think he was getting at when he's going through some of those opposing worldviews and saying what they do is they answer those same basic fundamental questions. That's what a worldview does, is it answers those questions. Rob? Yeah. Yeah. And in, with, with that statement, I think we're starting, we start to get a sense of, of um, why it's important when we're thinking about how to, how to evangelize, how to defend the faith. What we're, starting, what we're talking about is that there's, there's more than one starting place we could start at. And the question is, which one of them really addresses people as they are? Which one of them gets at human beings who live on worldviews like this? And, and which ones maybe uh, talk past a person accidentally by making the wrong assumptions about them? Yeah, yeah that's our hope, right? Um, if we're correct about all of this, what we're going to find is that everyone... Uh, and what I mean is, if, if, we're, if we're right that the biblical worldview is the only one that matches with reality and explains reality, here's what we're going to find. Anyone else, no matter what worldview they claim with their lips or believe with their own conscious mind, they're going to find themselves walking onto a biblical worldview by necessity without even meaning to, just in order to function in the real world. You see what I'm saying? If reality is, is, matches this worldview, the only way for you to successfully live and not to die is to accidentally wander onto it from time to time or borrow from it. So uh, he gave us some examples. Uh, here are those three uh, components of, of worldview, right? I, I, put, I put two examples down here. The secular humanist uh, who, who states these are, these, these are the worldview claims that he makes and that he holds to consciously. Uh, all knowledge, true knowledge, comes down to testing through the scientific method. Uh, there is nothing that exists outside of the material universe. Right? Uh, but that, that person is going to then assume that immaterial things like laws of logic and laws of matter actually do exist. He can't do any scientific experiments without assuming 
that those laws exist and are regular and will be true tomorrow like they were true yesterday. He has to assume those things. But his worldview does not argue that those things are true. So he will say a thing with his mouth and do a different thing with his hands and fail to understand the disconnection that's, that's going on there. They will insist that faith is the opposite of science and that only fools just base something on an authoritative claim that someone has given to them. But then they'll go through their entire day doing things like sitting in chairs that they have not tested themselves for reliability, and trusting all kinds of claims of authority from other scientists that they have not tested themselves, but trusting them and acting on them without having tested them themselves. They will take claims of authority themselves. right? And the idea is if this is how metaphysics and epistemology works, they cannot help but do that because that's how reality works. Um, an existentialist, that was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mentality. right? Um, what do they say then about, about ethics, about the existence, the real existence of right or wrong? You, you know because we hear it all the time today. Uh, morality is a convention that has, been, that has been agreed upon by men, either at the personal level, morality is just a personal uh, decision that I make about what I think is good or bad, or maybe at the, uh, the communal level. So right and wrong is determined by what a community thinks and has agreed upon as, as being right or wrong. They will make those statements with their lips. But then when I steal their car... They won't just be angry about that. They will believe themselves to have been treated unjustly. They will believe something to have been violated that they deserve recompense for, right? Their own emotions will betray what they, the way that the reality actually works, you see? They will be shown conditions in other societies where you have communal agreement on morality that they will look at and say, that's wicked and that must be abolished. They'll look back to pre-colonial India where widows, where, 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 where uh, wives were forced to throw themselves on their husband's funeral pyre and be burned to death. And they'll say, no, that, that needs to be changed. Even though that was the communal agreed upon uh, right and wrong of that uh, system, they won't be able to maintain consistently the claims that they are making because their own worldview cannot account for the experience of the real world. And that's our task. That's part of our task is to, with love and gently, to help them to recognize those things. To see that, that other worldviews simply cannot account for the way they themselves live and the way that reality itself works. And as the study goes on, we're going to get to hear and think through uh, a lot of, of very helpful examples of this sort of thing. Uh, I want to just end by rereading for us something that, that Dr. Bonson said uh, earlier on, uh, that he's saying to push us as Christians to, to come to see the depth that our own worldview um, holds for us, uh, that it claims to shape and determine every area of our thought. You remember when he said this? He said, Christianity is not simply about a certain narrow range of experiences, like when you pray or when you go to church. If you are committed to him anywhere, then you need to be committed to him everywhere. That is, since Christianity is a worldview, it's a distinct way of looking at everything. Literature, human nature, social relationships, 
economics, politics, family life, recreation, art, industry, every aspect of human experience. Our worldview lays claim on. And this is the question, it's a very good one for us to, be, to have posed to us from time to time. What are the places in my thinking and my living that I have, uh, in which I find, just like those other examples of others, I find, oh, I am living inconsistently with what I claim. Any final comments before I close this out? Ken? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, Dad, I'll give you the last word. Somebody died to get those glasses broken off of my face and a new set put on my face. Yeah. All right, uh, thank you. We are dismissed.